0: helping community leaders grow financially resilient, resource conscious, and people friendly cities. is the Go Cultivate podcast brought to you by Verdunity. Hey guys, welcome back to the Go Cultivate podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Shepard. Uh, my co-host Jordan is working overtime these days on editing these, these recent episodes that I've been doing solo. So You'll hear his voice back on here again soon, for sure. Today's guest is John Anderson. He's the co-founder of the Incremental Development Alliance, a 501c3 that trains and supports aspiring and practicing small developers all over the U.S. I met John seven or eight years ago, probably now at a CNU Congress for the New Urbanism event, and then I got to know him a little bit better when InkDev had their very first small developer boot camp. Uh, here in nearby Duncanville, Texas. Duncanville, you may, you may recognize that, that name from Monty Anderson, who we've had on the podcast in the past. No relation to John, but they are, uh, they're co-founders of the Incremental Development Alliance. Duncanville is Monty's one of Monty's farms, his home base. That's actually where he lives and uh, where his business is, is located. But I, uh, I had a chance to really get to know John back during that, that boot camp, and we've uh, kept in touch, worked together a little bit. And uh, he's a resource that, that I look to quite a bit when uh, I'm looking for input on small development codes and, and really just small develop- or small business in general. He's one of the country's best when it comes to all aspects of small development. Um, anything from due diligence and site selection all the way through pro formas, design, financing, understanding all of the different financing aspects and loans that are out there. Code hacks, uh, things that you need to do with the codes to allow the small development and, and missing middle. Things like fourplexes, duplexes. Um, and also in construction methods, he, he actually got into the development field. Uh, he was an ele- electrician and then uh, moved his way into small development. Uh, from there. So I had planned to talk about, uh, get him on today to talk about the incremental development alliance, uh, the small developer movement that they've cultivated over the last five or six years. Um, but it, we also wanted to get into the CARES Act and how it relates to small businesses, how some of what we're hearing and experiencing ourselves going after some of those funding programs that are out and then end with with what cities can do to cultivate a stronger small small business local developer ecosystem in their community. Uh, we ended up winding our way through those things (laughs) Um, but as John and I do we we tend to we we went around a, a few stories in there a few frustrations and and definitely some suggestions mixed in so it's a good conversation I hope you enjoy it here is my interview with John Anderson okay so today I'm uh I'm excited to have on with us a good friend, somebody I uh, haven't actually seen in a while, but uh, we talk a lot on social media and all that good stuff. John Anderson, welcome to the Go Cultivate podcast.
1: Well, thank you, Kevin. Glad to be here.
0: So I wanted to have you on. I mean, we could... Shoot, we could talk about a lot of different stuff, but but I think specifically the the intersection of the incremental development, small business or small developer kind of tribe that you've been instrumental in in building and growing over the last couple of years um, and the CARES Act and getting funding to some of these small businesses, um, that's really what I want to focus on, on today. We're doing a, a series of podcasts just on the COVID pandemic and, and how that's affecting everything from... Getting the FEMA funding in your community to getting the the local businesses the money. Um, we're talking about um, going to be talking with John Zimmerman about complete streets, active transportation. But we're right in the middle. Um, I know you and I both are, have been going back and forth with the CARES Act and different elements and what we can qualify for and if we're ever going to see that money. So let's just start off just uh, real briefly by talking about um, incremental development, the incremental development alliance that you've been instrumental in building. And just talk about InkDev, the small developers, and what that group has been doing the last couple of years.
1: Well, uh, actually, it was like five years ago that we had the first uh, small developer boot camp in scenic Duncanville, Texas, in August. Uh, Kevin, I think you were there, weren't you?
0: I I was there. I was there for the very first one.
1: Yeah, and it was at an event center that was a converted auto body shop and the air conditioning wasn't quite up to the task
0: <laughs> and we had
1: uh it was a two-day death march by powerpoint um and then every evening we it was like high school we drank beer in the parking lot um we had about 108 people and uh, and that got us launched a couple months later we put together uh, a 501c3 nonprofit uh, and formally named it the incremental development alliance then we figured out that IDA is also the acronym for the International Downtown Association. So, <laughs> um, so the the shorthand for Incremental Development Alliance has become Inc. Dev. Sounds like it might be a financial tech company or something. Anyway, Inc. Dev as the nonprofit. <laughs> so we've got about twenty people on the faculty, all of them practicing small developers uh, that do the uh, do the workshops, the lectures, and the boot camps. And uh, some of those folks also cross over working with uh, cities, helping them uh, craft text amendments, uh, do stress tests on their zoning code to see. uh, The intent is to uh, help facilitate more small development uh, because it really is a much better fit for most of the policies of towns trying to revitalize. If they can get somebody to work on the stray lots here and there Scattered lot development really isn't workable for large scale developers. They need a consolidated mm-hmm. parcel. They need, you know, basically economy of scale. And small developers are more hyper local in their focus uh, and can do the smaller projects. So, what we have come to understand is that a small developer needs a very different business model than a large shop. You can't take the uh, Quo quo ULI approach and just shrink it down. Uh, Because that's really based on economy of scale, they would like to have as many units on the project as possible to spread all of the brain damage and legal fees and such over a larger number of units. Whereas a small developer can have a competitive advantage by knowing the neighborhood, uh, knowing the local staff and the elected officials, local bankers it's a uh, kind of a parallel system like metric to somebody else's uh, English Imperial inches and feet. And that you don't really want to cross thread it. Uh, both the techniques from one don't really cross over. You can't, you can't do bootstrap financing on a large master plan, uh, <laughs> right? but you can do it for small stuff. So what we've seen after training close to 2000 people, um, people kind of slip off our radar and then we get a, we get a Facebook post with them pouring concrete or gutting a building or something. Um, They're typically, um, they kind of self-select or are kind of a piratey crew that's looking to uh, push the envelope, uh, question the rules, uh, push things like parking requirements and uh, and create uh, good workarounds for issues in the building or zoning code. Uh, And they're also using off-the-shelf Uh, Kind of everyday financial tools. Uh, You can build a four-unit, a fourplex with the conventional 30-year FHA, VA, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan. Um, So the building things in small pieces, you can always aggregate them into something bigger. But it's very hard to take something very large and then phase it. Nobody does a Texas donut in phases. It's you're committing to the whole thing all at once. Uh-huh. Uh, for folks not from texas the texas donut is uh apartments or townhouses wrapping either service parking or a structured parking uh, parking garage uh, the donut references the the buildings are going around the parking
0: we uh, we have a lot then, we have a lot of those here in north texas
1: <laughs> yeah the uh hence that's why they're called texas donuts and not illinois donuts so um <laughs>
0: I like but Illinois the, donuts better.
1: Yeah, well, the um, yeah, it's your fault. These these things are out in the world. Um, the what we're seeing in a lot of places like the the former Rust Belt, uh, Great Lakes region, Western New York, uh, down into places like South Bend, Memphis, Chattanooga, uh, and even here in Atlanta, is that there are lots of opportunities in existing neighborhoods for the people who already live there. So as neighborhoods redevelop, um, the opportunity to uh, prevent or reduce displacement from gentrification is there if we can work with folks that are on the ground already.
0: Yeah, with a, a lot of the work that that we do, you know, I, I advocate for the the bottom up incremental approach. You know, kind of the the mashup of the strong towns and the ink dev together is is really a lot of what we push for. And one of the most common things I've heard you know, over and over is okay, this sounds really good. Now, you know, where are the developers that'll do that? Um, because you're you're right, the big developers don't want, you know, any part of that. And luckily here, you know, here locally we've got you know we've got Monty who um you know Monty's been on our podcast before and our listeners know him well and but even he, you know, he's he's got a limit to how far he wants to work, and one of the things he always talks about is you know know your farm and, and stay in that that one location. So, uh, but I think what what you guys have done with with InkDev is really to fill that gap a lot more, realizing that a, a lot of cities that that we've worked, they, they don't realize that they have people right there in their own community that want to do this stuff, and they just don't. They're scared of the codes, or you know they've they've yeah. tried to get a you know a code shown a code changed in in the past and haven't been able to.
1: Well, and that's one of the reasons why. The idea, if you're going to make a bunch, you know, you're going to cultivate a, a cohort of new developers that operate differently. um, You, you, we constantly uh, advise them to look for a project as your first project that you can do, as of right, without any discretionary approvals, without asking for any relief on parking or the like. so because you need to be able to, if, you're, if things are going to change, they change at the pace that you develop, you build trust. Because um, these aren't technical issues. These are issues that people are either comfortable doing something different or they're not. And uh, you need to be able to demonstrate that um, that you can certainly operate within the rules, but you could do more if the rules could be refined or, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of one sentence in a text amendment that mm-hmm. makes a small project viable or not. So the, uh, uh, we've seen the approach in, in uh, I think in, in South Bend, where when they did the comprehensive plan, um, they, in the implementation section, which in many comp plans is like a paragraph. Um, this was <laughs> a little bigger. Um, how are we gonna implement these really important big policy ideas? One of the things they put in there was instead of the usual, and we'll bring the uh, zoning codes and development regulations in line with these important policies. Uh, they added that, and you know, for that purpose, the planning director shall bring uh, uh, text amendments to the council for approval over the over the uh, next year, eighteen months, or something. Mm-hmm. So, uh, right after the consent agenda, there are often you know two paragraphs. You know, strike this, insert that. Uh, that come up for the council to ratify on the planning on the planning director's recommendation um, huh. and rather than uh, a complete huge uh, kind of uh, housekeeping you know seven pages of, of amendments that take a lot of staff work these are things that kind of come up along the way they're they're fairly easy fixes and rather than them sitting around for six months waiting for the big omnibus housekeeping code fix right uh and the budget required (laughs) for it it's two sentences that have been run by the city attorney and then they you know they modify the zoning code so the and the these aren't huge things they're often uh uh problems that uh kind of found their way into the local zoning code that have nothing to do with what's on the ground if you have kind of a uh, a standard zoning code that was adopted in the 70s, um, it may be treating your downtown like it's a suburban shopping center. And, you know, how could you change that? Well, a sentence here mm-hmm. and a sentence there. And a lot of that comes from doing a stress test where we sit down with the planning and the public works staff, city attorney, and others, and we try to show how the the buildings that everyone loved in town may not be possible to be built again because of the zoning code. And you hear that a lot. It's kind of hard to, you know, people have a hard time believing it, because like, what do you mean? It's like, it's right there. I can see it.
0: <laughs> I yeah, know. those built, do this stuff. With, yeah.
1: Yeah. But yeah. it was built by a lost race whose secrets are now lost to us. You know? <laughs> um, so it's like, well, what would it take? And it usually comes down to lot coverage, uh uh, parking, um, you know, any one of stormwater, stormwater, you know, the, uh, so the opportunity to fix that once you find it, you know, the exercise we put people through in a stress test is, okay, here is a 50 by a hundred lot with an alley in the middle of a block on, you know, in your commercial downtown zoning. And here is the building you all love, you know, uh, here's your code, here's the building. Here's a blank pro forma to fill out to see if this building could be built now and make money. Now, you, mm. you, uh, you're on a clock here. Now, try to make it work. And uh, because a lot of folks that are, are working in a specialty area in the city government uh, have never really had to do the exercise of uh, what would it take for this building to make money given the rents that are likely available and what it's likely going to cost to build and to operate. So once they get into that really exotic math, now they understand the implication of, you know, it really is a big deal uh, to ask somebody to cut their project back from eight units to six, where it, that seems like a minor compromise and developers must be making a huge amount of money. So why would you object to this six units? If you're doing the math yourself, kind of in the body, then you understand that now your project is no longer financially feasible. You know, and so there's, uh, so the first round of that uh, stress test, you know, in about 20 to 30 minutes, there's this wave of disappointment and frustration that kind of sweeps over the room where they realize they they can't build the building that everybody likes. And then you say, okay, so now uh, you're all broken into groups. You know, someone in your group of three people needs to be the scribe to keep track of. What rules would you have to modify or possibly eliminate that would allow this uh, allow you to deliver on the vision of the comprehensive plan? And people go right to basically eighty percent overlap with each other, and now there's pretty broad consensus among the staff and maybe some electives attending of what needs to get changed and why, as opposed to someone's advocating for it, but you don't really understand the language they speak because they're from. The developer tribe and not the public advocate or or uh, public sure. servant side so it's about it's about translation and and kind of understanding uh what it's going to take to uh build trust and, and and acquire some empathy for the other people that have a, a role to play in all this and the people the fact that people are upset about you know development doesn't come from some psychosis it comes from seeing what we've been building the last 30, 40 years is mm-hmm. sometimes it's not a lot to write home about.
0: Oh yeah. And then you, you kind of stack on top of that, what you've talked about the revenue per acre. And that's something that, that we, uh, we do a lot of, I, I really, I spend a lot of time talking about just the, the infrastructure funding gap and, and how certain development patterns, not just the revenue side, but but certain development patterns also add, can either reduce or add to your infrastructure costs and your service costs in terms of police and fire and all those other things. And just the same way you talk about the stress test, some of the workshops that, that we do, you get in there and it is fun to get them. You, you just, you ask the right questions in the right order and then you can see the light bulbs start to go off and then it does. Some of them will get just flat out pissed at like, well, why why have we been allowing this kind of development for the last yeah, 30 how years? How come if, if nobody –
1: somebody should have told me this harder launder yeah. longer previously. You know? Yeah, somebody should um, have stopped
0: this shit 30 years ago.
1: <laughs> well, but at the same time, uh, we see folks that – I think they, they have a, like an internal gyroscope where they can sense the grade break, the 2% grade that is a slippery slope to having to re-examine everything about the way that the city's finances work. And at that point, they want to dig in their heels and not not go there because they, they have a sense that this is really bad. And if yeah. I, I could just serve out my term, I've only got six more months and then I'll be free of this. And, Ooh. you know, it's ironic that it often takes we somebody. We do another
0: episode to just talk about that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think, uh you know, if you had told me that I was not going to be when I was 30, that I was that the I, this road I'd, t- I'd taken as a developer, um, this is not a technical thing. This is all about people's feelings and about changing the culture of organizations and, you know, uh, uh-huh. and communities, then I probably would have stayed an electrician. I just uh, <laughs> because feelings are messy and and. Uh, when you get really kind of focused in on a technical issue, you get really upset if people don't like uh, think that your your equation or your explanation is brilliant and they should just stop doing what they're doing. You know, human behavior doesn't turn on a dime, and it shouldn't because we'd all, you know, I remember the hairstyles of the 70s and the 80s. It, you know, that if that stuck around, we'd all look pretty stupid. <laughs> so I think that the, uh, recognizing that. Almost anything we're going to be doing in the coming years is going to require change, uh, some hard choices, uh, trade-offs that we weren't anticipating two months ago. And, you know, we're going to have to understand a lot more about what other people's stake in this stuff is. We can't just go off our own information. You know, we're going to be kind of trading information and feelings about how we're going to go forward. Yeah. And you can imagine somebody's an elected official, a department head, senior staff, the number of people tugging their coat looking for a fix, looking for a solution, because they wanted to believe that their elected officials were such wise grownups that they could fix this stuff. And that's really not a reasonable expectation. You know? um, there are a lot of things that, I mean, it comes to a point where as individuals, I can't do what I can't do you know we can talk about yeah. how we might get partway through some trade-offs and and kind of bailing wire and duct tape and bubble gum to keep society moving but we don't get to do the big fixes we get to do the small local ones uh right now we're everyone's waiting for the department of labor in washington to fund uh the 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 enhanced unemployment stuff And the money hasn't come yet, so the states can't release it. Um, And the, uh, I I think to a large extent, uh, I mean, you think about an outfit like FEMA, which has a hard time doing their job, you know, in a set of normal emergencies, or the SBA, you know, that they're kind of stretched day to day anyway. (laughs) So now we have a Katrina in every major city, uh, a crop failure across everywhere, Uh, for the SBA or the Farmer's Home Administration, Ag Mm -hmm. know, So everybody's got this huge demand, and they're trying to make it work with the existing uh, administration they had. So no matter how good or well-intentioned a piece of legislation comes out of Congress, we have to have a, in a situation like this, we need a highly competent executive branch to be able to execute it. And uh, we don't have that right now for various reasons.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, what you, you touched on just a second ago of, of the local level and, you know, doing what you can. And I think even before this this whole thing happened, um, you know, you, you look at the the kinds of communities that people are after and want to be a part of, you know, collaborative and, and you know, strong local business and, and placemaking and identity and, you know, Financially resilient and sustainable—all those buzzwords that that people use—and one of the things I'll, I'll say in all my talks early on is that almost every city you go to wants to be some version of financially sustainable, environmentally resilient, socially inclusive. But the daily decisions, investments, policies don't align with those outcomes. You know, it's it's the short-term wins, it's the ribbon cuttings, it's you know, it's the big companies yeah. coming to town that they get the time, and and that's in that was in you know business as usual before. Um, And so you got the small developers, you got the group you're cultivating that are they're making it work, even despite that kind of culture. You know, they're doing the hard work to provide the buildings and the businesses and the you know affordable housing units and all those things that ultimately make you know get closer to those outcomes. When they're fighting upstream with policies and investments and and you know and things like that, then then you throw COVID on top of it and it, you just look around the communities and it's those same small businesses. Some of them have gone out of business already. A lot of them are just hanging on by the skin of their teeth for the next two or three days or a week, hoping to get some of this this money soon. So they're, they're on the verge of bankruptcy. And at the same time, those are the same businesses that are out there in the community doing every, they, everything they can to help everybody else. And it's the path forward before this happened, definitely the path forward now is going to be focusing local, focusing on, you know, building that, that yeah. good, strong local small business entrepreneurial ecosystem, getting kind of the diversifying your housing stock through small development, not the big developers. You know, all that stuff. I think that's the path forward. So,
1: well, we, I mean, we, we could pre-pandemic, we could get a lot done if we just kind of had uh, a, a level playing field or maybe just benign neglect. You just didn't screw with us too much. We could get a lot done. Um, <laughs> the, uh, and I think that'll continue, uh, the pace at which we can do it or how quickly we can come up to scale, creating new small developers. Um, you know, it's going to hang on a, a bunch of things, but I think that, uh, I like our chances just because, uh, people that may have been pursuing other work don't have it anymore and it may make sense to renovate a house and rent it out. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine today that has a crew renovating houses that he and his partner are going to be renting out and their crew is entirely out of work musicians. Right. So, um, they're not the most efficient crew and everything, but you know, they, they do good work. And right now they're working basically for, uh, in lieu of rent. Um, you know, the, um, Because they were they they made an okay living, you know, playing uh, you know weddings and bars and places where people gather, and that's not happening anymore. So their their cash flows dried up. At the same time, uh, my friend can handle uh, materials and 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 skilled trades and the like, but is not in a position to be able to take out a bunch of construction loans. So he's he's renovating with his own cash and his own uh, Home Depot and Lowe's credit card and his crew of five, five starving musicians,
0: uh, (laughs) you know, are, there's a a song in there, isn't there?
1: (laughs) There. Yeah. The, uh, uh, there could be a nice logo on a pickup truck at some point. Oh, there's an outfit in, uh, in Memphis called two broke bartenders. And it's, (laughs) it's painted on the side of a pickup truck. And You need a load of mulch, they'll take care of it. They, you want to rip out a bathroom, put a new one in, they're, they're ready for it. Um, because the, the places they worked at are shut down. So I think that we'll see, you know, at the total grassroots level, people bartering all kinds of things. Um, people, you know, um, someone, you know, uh, you know, a single widow lady on my block, her backyard is being cultivated by uh, by uh, three siblings across the street, um, and so she'll get you know. It's, so it's like uh, you know, neighborhood sharecropping. You know, uh, the 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 three sisters are doing the work, and they'll share uh, the pr- the produce out of the garden uh, with their host and you know with other folks in the neighborhood. So I think the the ability to, you know, particularly with the physical distancing we're doing, everyone is really hungry for a connection with other people.
0: Uh-huh. But that's,
1: you know, to have a meaningful life, you need to be connected with other people. So no matter how long we have to maintain this to uh, keep the impact of the COVID-19 virus down, um, I don't think we're going to forget how much we need each other. And if the institutions that we have, uh, you know, crumble, stumble or, or hit the wall, we'll figure out new ones, but it'll be at a, at a grassroots stage. Um, the top down stuff is going to be important, but there's a lot of leverage that goes with that and, and it may head in the wrong direction. I mean, I don't mind, you know, if I lose everything as long as everybody else does, but if the folks that are the city banks and the goldman sachs that are too big to fail if they make out you know like they did last time you know if they get propped up uh and everybody else takes it on the chin th- then we'll have even greater uh disparity of wealth and our our society will be really polarized
0: I mean, that's my biggest fear in all this, John. Is is it's there was already kind of a, a growing gap there, and this whole situation—you had a small businesses that were growing, and and this is just this has wiped them out. And it's they can't go get the capital and start over. You know, the the big yep. guys can go declare bankruptcy and they move a few things around. They keep most of their people. I mean, the whole threat that they've got to do a bunch of layoffs is kind of crud because they really don't you know they move a bunch of stuff around they declare bankruptcy and then it's business as usual and they're back to to going the small businesses can't do that i mean they get wiped out and they're they're done and that you know that that capital to reinvest and start anew is is not going to be there there this time which is kind of you know what makes some of this cares act stuff so so frustrating just the intent to get the money into people's hands quickly it sounded great but it's not you know it's not happening and well, I don't, I don't you, know, I, you know, I don't think it's going to happen. But, but
1: if you but if you're talking about Department of Labor and the Small Business uh-huh. Administration, quickly is a function of the metabolism that those organisms mm-hmm. run at, you know, and, uh, you know, yeah. it, it's entish, you know, it's, uh, it's going to take a while, you know, it'll help, but it won't be enough. And yeah. they're already, I think Congress comes back on the 20th or something. And they'll be rolling right into the fourth relief bill. The uh, I just got a call from from a small business banker at, at Bank of America to let me know that they okay they've got all my paperwork in and they're moving it forward. And I asked, you know, well, I'd like to get you know like a regular garden variety 7a loan for a uh, a building that we want to you know buy and occupy and lease out part of it. Um, what are my chances of being able to talk to somebody that? you know, used to do that for a living. He said, well, all those people are processing the protection program uh, applications Uh now when we really don't know when we're going to be able to return to business as usual. Now, I don't feel particularly sorry for Bank of America because uh, for loans of less than $150,000, they get five points and then four points up to, I think, half a million and three points above that. Uh, So Uh Uh, and these loans are guaranteed 100%, which means that the banks can sell them to the secondary market and make another fee. So right. they're going to be doing a whole lot of retail banking and collecting a lot of fees and doing this. And they've had to really scramble to get their infrastructure in, in place. So in some respects, they may be in better shape uh, if the guarantees continue to do more small business lending. Um, the so the CARES Act has two pieces. Uh, running through the SBA as a department. One is the the, uh, economic injury uh, disaster loan, the EIDL, and that's money direct from the SBA. And that was, uh, did have an advance or a grant of $10,000 baked into it, baked into the law. But I think what happened, I I don't know what happened, but the uh, the effect is that they're limiting that now to $1,000 per employee. So uh, if you're a sole proprietor and you were hoping to see $10,000, now you're going to see $1,000. And that may be just a function of the sheer volume of applications they got compared to the money that they have. So we may see more money put into that, but that's direct from the SBA. But the uh, the PPT, the uh, Payroll Protection Program, is loans that are being made by banks, you know, their depositors, their shareholders' money. And basically, with the prime at almost zero, it's they can basically get free money to loan out uh, with 100% guarantee from the, the SBA. So the idea is to get money out. At this point, let's get the bank's money out with a guarantee behind it. Uh, they can sell that at the secondary market to refill their cash drawer and do it again. So it's, it makes sense in theory, but in practice, uh-huh. the time that it takes and the kind of the lack of transparency about, so, you know, uh, I filled out these forms that were a little tortured. I hope I did it right. Can you tell me if I did it right? Can you tell me
0: yeah. if I did it <laughs> right?
1: Can you tell me when I might see some money? I get payroll to make, uh, it, there was, I can't tell you how many, uh, stories I've heard on that level, just from folks in the neighborhood, the guy at the hardware
0: store, you know? Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, it varies so much by the banks, the size of the bank, you know, have they been doing SBA loans in the, in the past, or they a current lender, yada, yada. And just, I mean, in our, in our situation, I know my, my wife, Natalie, she's got her business account through bank of America and that process for her, I mean, it was in the portal was open. She did it, she got it in. And I mean, it was, you know, now she's in the queue and, and just waiting You know, my bank is a local smaller bank, and it's taken a lot longer for them to work through that process. Um, You know, and it's still, you know, they they have their priorities of which accounts are kind of at the top of, you know, at the top of the list. But
1: but also, if you walked into Bank of America right now, and you don't have a relationship with them, you'll be at the back of the line. And that's, that's reasonable.
0: You know, Bank, yeah, it is. It, it is. And, you know, Bank of America is even, you know, helping my wife do hers. I mean, they had some criteria in there. Of, you know, have you had an existing account with us? Do you have a, a business credit card, you know, credit line with us? And there yeah. they want to prioritize their, you know, their current customer. That, well, that makes, actually you know, that makes the, perfect sense.
1: So we applied the day the port. you know, uh, the day the portal opened and uh, we just maintain our, our operating accounts there. We haven't taken out a credit card or any debt with Bank of America. Um, and so, well, even though you have a business checking account and deposits with us, uh, because you haven't, don't have a loan relationship with us, we can't accept your, your application. And then two days later, they changed it. You know, I, I'm <laughs> guessing there was a bit of a, uh, a flurry of activity on that. So, so we're seeing kind of the goalposts be moved periodically. You know, the, the, the rules of the game are changing in the middle of the game, which pisses off Americans people yeah. in developing countries are used to that um here in america we like to think that you know uh you commit something on the front and you should follow up on it that's you know that's how we determine if you're a stand-up guy so um uh, so it's it's hard to have confidence in the institutions and if you watch them the daily briefings your confidence gets eroded um the uh i, I tend to try to uh limit my diet of the stuff that I can't do anything about um, and try to stay focused on what would benefit uh, people in our cohort and people in my neighborhood. Now, there's a couple of things that came through the CARES Act that are big game changers for for small developers. Um, There was a provision in the Tax Cut and Jobs Act that was passed in 2017 where they they wanted to, the Congress had intended to create a situation that for 15 or 20 year improvements in a building you could get bonus depreciation you could depreciate it all in one year right so if you renovate a building and um, there you do a hundred thousand dollars worth of work you could take that as a depreciation expense all at once um, what's happened in the cares act is they fixed that language because it was kind of they went halfway there and actually created a bunch of disincentives. So they fixed that, um, recognizing that it was really a drafting error in the previous tax bill. which was only you know 1,200 pages anyway. Uh, so in the 880 pages of the CARES Act, they fixed that. And they also put in something about uh, net operating losses. So if you have a net operating loss, you lost money this year. You can carry that back five years and Uh. file amended returns and get a tax uh, refund, right? So um, the nice thing about that combined with the bonus depreciation is you can use that depreciation to create a net operating loss and carry it back and get some of the money you paid in as taxes back. So for instance, uh, one of the buildings we're looking at, the interior work is about 800,000. If we had somebody that came with us to to uh, uh, help with the down payment on the construction loan, so they put in three hundred thousand dollars, and we do eight hundred thousand dollars worth of interior work. If they uh, it, and then within an LLC, you can allocate depreciation. You do it doesn't go strictly mm-hmm. by capital accounts like it would for right. a corporation or partnership. So you can allocate to that investor. You get all eight hundred thousand dollars worth of depreciation. Here you go. Uh, here's the three hundred thousand dollars. The refinance you go from construction to permanent loan. Here's your three hundred grand back, and here's eight hundred thousand dollars worth of depreciation. And if you're in the thirty-five percent tax bracket, that's about two hundred eighty thousand dollars. So making two eighty on top of three hundred over say two years is about a forty percent IRR. So you could have an investor, and by allocating depreciation to them, you don't have them as a long-term partner. You don't have to share the cash flow with them. You're not actually paying them an actual return out of the out of the building. You just give them their cash back and allocating the depreciation. So if a building is going to be kind of a thin deal in the next couple of years because the economy is in tough shape, this is a way for small developers to be able to put together the equity they need to acquire and renovate buildings. Hmm. Now, this is for existing buildings. I got to talk to the CPAs about how's that work for, uh, for new construction. So that's, wow. that's some good news. Um, and since we're in contract, we, we own one and we're in contract to buy another existing building, uh, we'll be using that. Um, <laughs> uh, the, uh, um, so I think that the, uh, I think there are some opportunities in this. I think that you'll see people in the trades uh, bartering to be able to put together modest rental portfolios with by trading services or starving musicians, you know, trading labor for uh, for lodging. There would be a lot of, uh, you know, things done on the down low just to survive and to to get to the next thing.
0: Hey, listener,
1: Jordan Clark, just checking in for a brief moment wanted to let you know that if you want a place to discuss what we're talking about in this episode or any other episodes you can check out our online network we call the community cultivators network it's free and it's the place that we're talking about these topics and a whole lot more i've put a link in the show notes it's communitycultivators.co
0: we hope to see you there What would you say maybe to the the communities as we start to, as cities start to stabilize, you know, right now, all the all the local governments are just scrambling to see, you know, how do they make it through this fiscal year? They're starting budgeting for the next fiscal year and what kind of reserves do they have? What do they got to cut? All that kind of stuff. But once they get stabilized and they start to look forward to getting out of this, what could those cities maybe do to improve the relationship with the small builders in their community and maybe not just the small developers themselves, but also the trades, because I think and and the when when things are good, that was always one of the things I heard is, okay, now I'm a small developer. I got the codes in place. I got my building, I'm ready to go. And I can't find the, I can't find the crews to build this stuff. So I think there is an opportunity to kind of cultivate your local workforce and that local, the the way we used to build our cities and towns, you know, way back, way back, way, way back.
1: Well, let's talk about labor for a minute. I've talked to a number of folks framers, electricians, roofers, HVAC guys. And even though they're able to charge more, they're making the same money or less uh, profit-wise because their overhead's the same, their workers' comp is the same, except that now because labor is in short supply, construction schedules are all over the map and they're no longer reliable. So somebody that might be doing, you know, a... Uh, Last year they did twenty-five houses and this year they're doing twelve and with the same number of people and with the same overhead and they just can't do it in an efficient way because they keep showing up and the work and the site's not ready for them or communication gets scrambled because, you know, uh the, the framer didn't get the structural inspection, so now they can't rough in. So they're standing there at the curb with a truck with three guys, a bunch of equipment. And they got to go find something else for them to do at eight o'clock on a Tuesday morning. And that ends up, you know, that ends up being reflected in the next bid you get from that electrician. So I think that the, uh, what we can see now, particularly for small operators is, um, you can, you can hire a couple of guys, you know, plumbers that have a different color fender on their van. They're really good plumbers, but you can't really do a project too big, otherwise you can't use Javier and his nephew. You know, it's gonna, now you're competing with somebody who's got seven trucks and 30, 30 plumbers. And they're working on the life sciences expansion of the, of the junior college or something. And you're, you've got a 12 plex and that's that doesn't really uh, uh, hold the same number of, of weight. That's not as big a project. So I think that there's a right sizing of the trades. There's a right sizing of the small developer enterprise. Uh, a lot of the people we work with, uh, this is a side hustle for them. They've got a W-2 regular job, and they're building a duplex here and a fourplex there, renovating a commercial building. Um, and they're trying to build passive income and long-term wealth for their family. Um, and it's you know it's their second 40-hour-a-week job. Mm-hmm. So I think that the what municipalities could do, first of all, I think just stop stop the economic development activity that gets you uh, manufacturing or service jobs that people can't find housing for. You know, we're, I was talking with a uh, housing uh, authority director in a small town in Georgia, and she was really upset because the, the, they've attracted a number of, of big outfits, you know, uh, name brand outfits to the industrial park. And for the wages they pay, people have to live in a single wide in the next county and commute an hour to work. You know, at that point, you know, your time for your kid's t-ball or your church or, Uh you know, fixing your own clogged drain starts to really uh, be eroded. Um, And plus you're spending a lot of money on your vehicles to make sure that they still run because if you can't get to work, you can't get paid. So I think that the, um, so if you put additional pressure on your town's social and physical infrastructure by creating jobs that you don't have housing for the people that are going to work there. Uh, that's a self-inflicted wound. So stop doing that first, do no harm. <laughs> then start to look you know, then start to look around at, uh, what level of economic development could happen, uh, with facade grants with, uh, guarantees for operating capital, uh, what could you do for the folks that are on Main Street and in the little industrial park now that uh, would make those businesses stronger? If they hired four or five more people, what does that do to your tax base? Well, that's more, those four or five more customers are going to buy a fried bologna sandwich at the pharmacy. So the uh, I think looking at a much smaller scale in terms of economic development, because you're not going to have big giveaways, you're not going to have, have uh, you're not floating bonds to give money to. Uh, people to build buildings. You're, you're looking for ways to uh, do more with what you've got already. Um, and you're you're now at a place where the economic development staff, city manager, the planning director, the public works director, all those folks, city finance people, uh, it is in their interest to really understand how a business makes money or doesn't. And to understand what their role could be in cultivating those businesses, maybe it's even just a question of, uh, you can be in a book club at the chamber and y'all study the 14th edition of small time operator, how to run your business, pay your taxes and stay out of trouble. You know, that <laughs> could be the, that could be, you know, yeah. can you imagine getting everybody together and, and every now and again, somebody pipes up that I had no idea I was supposed to do that. I wish my accountant <laughs> had told me. You know yeah. That stuff goes on every day for people that are committed to the service they want to provide or the product they want to make, and the, the paperwork, the contracts, the, the banking, the taxes is secondary, and they do it under duress, and maybe they've got a book, get good bookkeeper or a good accountant, but it's not the reason why they went into business. So it's always a B priority until it becomes a problem. So helping people get better at their business so they can expand kind of on their own momentum. They're not held back by, you know, not knowing what they don't know. So I think that the level of, of collaboration between local, uh, uh, components of government, economic development, institutions, hospitals, universities, the like, there's a lot that we can do together, uh, if we can build some trust. And, uh, if you, if, the underst- if, if you understand so little about how a building makes money or how a business makes money, you're always suspicious and untrusting of the people involved in that business, you know, and it's an, it becomes adversarial. So if they're not customers or partners, if they're people that are somehow uh, uh, taking undue advantage of, of civic benefits, you know, if that's, if that's how you see people, it's easy to, to interpret their actions as more bad behavior as opposed to innocent behavior that, you know, they're all trying to make a living and make the city work better. So I think that the more education for folks in the in, uh, that are in public service to understand what what these steps are within the private sector and where uh, the gears can mesh instead of grind. So we're not going to do each other's job.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of—I um, mean—that's a good place to to start to wrap this up. But really, you know, back to look at how InkDev has evolved. You guys initially started as a, as doing boot camps to to train small developers, and you've evolved a little bit over time to now you're doing some of these these workshops and stuff for the broader community to to help exactly the conversation that you're you're talking about, right?
1: Yeah. Well, you need to build the whole ecosystem. The yep. Uh you're only gonna go so far if the uh, if the community is hostile to the idea that people need a place to live. Um, you can still get some things done, you know, if you're determined. It's just a lot easier <laughs> if people agree with you that people need a place to live, um, or they need a place to operate their business. So I think that uh uh what I hope uh we can see is uh a recognition that whatever happens in Washington or the state, at the state level, um, things that are going on in the local community are things that we can control. Like we're, we're keeping the the infection curve down by social distancing and, you know, staying home. And we're all doing that and, and we can take credit for the fact that less people are going to die because of that. So if we move that same recognition that we're in this together into how do we build a sustainable local economy that's uh, got a wide range of enterprises in it so it's not all dependent on the cement plant at the edge of town, Uh, then, you know, our connections with each other can breed connections in commerce and civic life. And we can have a, you know, the good news is we could have a better life coming out of this uh, if we remember the lessons. What we've seen, though, with other disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, is that people, a part of their brain switches off. They become highly emotional. More than anything, they want things to be back the way it was. And often that becomes uh, back, not the way it actually was, but back to the way that the idealized way that it was. So then everything falls short. Even if you bring it back the way it was, it's not enough. You know so i think that if we fall into that where we start uh treating people as the other that you know somehow uh, it's a net zero game that i'm only you know if somebody else is benefiting that well, it's probably going to be at my expense uh, that kind of attitude we saw that uh we saw amazing good things being done for each other at a local level after katrina but then the further away from the actual event, you know, people are in, still in tough shape. They're still hurting, but now they're trying to put their lives back together again. And it becomes uh, competitive, adversarial and difficult. So if we can build the relationships now and carry them forward and have people thinking on a kind of a new level, then I'm, I'm optimistic.
0: Yeah. So. With uh, a lot of the community leaders and residents, too, uh, that I've been visiting with the last couple of weeks, I think that the opinions really seem to be breaking down into what I would say three categories. Um, there's one group that, you know, I would just say are probably the the urban fans, urban development fans, the ones that have been advocating for density, mixed use, walkable, complete neighborhoods, public transit, things of that nature. Um, and they've really been doubling down on that position since the COVID stuff has come out, you'll see them advocating for things like uh, converting uh, vehicle lanes to bike paths. There is a lot of tactical pop-up movement happening with with that. As parks get overcrowded, we need more space for for just physical activity and social distancing. The reclaiming some of the roadways um, have been a part to do that, and so there is a movement there. A lot of people advocating to to do more of that as we come out of the pandemic. Then you have the suburban communities that, um, you know, they're kind of the same way of, of just the, the group that just wants to go back as business to business as usual as um, as soon as possible. Um, and then you have, I think, a pretty significant group in growing that's in the middle that's actually really digging a little bit deeper and observing, looking at, at how things are working through this and thinking about quality of life, neighborhood interactions. I mean, I know here in my neighborhood, there's, there's some people, you know, we've lived here for 15 years and... Never seen some of these people before, but you hear people talking over the fences and interacting and talking across the the street just because people are out more. Um, you've got less commute time. You know, people are at home more with their families more. Um, and so there, there's a lot of things there that I'm, I'm encouraged that there's city leaders that are looking at this saying, what can we take away from this? What does quality of life really mean? And, you know, can we do things to modify our path forward, I, I guess, to to take advantage of some of these things and not just default and go back to the way things were? You know, and just to build on that, I, I do. I hope city leaders will use this as an opportunity to to dig deeper. I, I hear people thinking about it, but I really hope they actually follow through and look at their policies and and look at zoning and transportation and neighborhood design and economic development incentives. Economic development is another one where we we talk about. Economic development is supposed to recruit and retain businesses, and there's so much emphasis on recruiting and bringing new ones in that sometimes we lose sight of of retaining businesses and taking care of the businesses that we already have.
1: Yeah, and and to to grow them, I think that the the opportunity we I don't think there's a shortage of goodwill in this country. I think that uh, that goodwill can get blunted or burned off if we want to blame somebody or if we Mm -hmm. want to uh polish our grievances you know if we feel like uh you know we're not getting everything that we deserve and that must be because somebody else is getting it then we're not ready to go the extra mile for other people it's a trap you know and i think that people will often vote against their self-interest if you validate their resentment and their grievances and Uh that kind of uh corrosive politics I think we we're in danger of seeing it come back in a big way. You know, if you want somebody to blame. In some respects the there's an undercurrent of people not trusting anybody who's an expert or holds themselves as an expert at something. And there are people in all kinds of city in city and state and and national departments that really do know their stuff and do important work but the kind of the popular narrative is somehow the government is the problem and government can't do anything right. And we could see this, uh, you know, the, the trouble getting unemployment straight, the trouble getting the $1,200 checks out the door, the trouble with the SBA as one more example of, see, government is the problem and, you know, we need to just look out for ourselves. And I think that kind of small ball, small uh, tribal thinking uh, diminishes us and, and takes away opportunity from people that are on the edge. So I think if we look out for those folks, if, if white folks with privilege can be allies and resources to uh, people of color, neighborhoods that have been seeing disinvestment, I think that's where uh, we can see a, a different quality of life come out of it. And if people don't like it, you ask them, what's your fucking genius plan?
0: Well, on that note, <laughs> John, I definitely I, I want to have you back on again and, and talk more about Ink Dove and, and some of the great things you're doing there. But I, I think uh, I appreciate the work that you're doing. I've I've been wanting to get back to another one of your boot camps for <laughs> what would you say. It's been five years.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's going to it's going to be uh, we're working on, on better online content and, uh, and putting you and, together you and
0: everybody else.
1: <laughs> yeah. You and everybody else. Uh, but this was actually on the work plan for the staff in the third quarter this year. We're just moving it up. Uh, but Monty and I are working, uh, together with some of the staff on how do we get a really good, uh, uh written and, and online curriculum put together, uh, kind of next level, go to more detail uh-huh. than you can just in, in a day or two face to face. And then we need to be able to cultivate local, uh, cohorts so that people can meet up and Meet their people because that's half the benefit right. of the workshops. So that uh, finding out that you're not crazy that other people do this stuff too. Well, thanks for having me. It's been really good.
0: Yeah, where uh, where can folks before we before we uh, wrap up? Where can folks follow you and uh, and dev both? I know. Uh, let's start with dev. Where's the best place to follow that?
1: Well, uh, it's incrementaldevelopment.org is the official uh, site. There's also an Incremental Development Alliance. Facebook page. There's a, a one step removed and with plausible deniability. There's the Facebook group that I put together uh, called We Do Incremental Development. Uh, there's about eight thousand people in that, and there's a lot of good information that's being
0: shared. That's an amazing resource for anybody wanting to get into small development or or city leaders. And I, I, you know, I don't know how you manage access to that thing, but there's. There's so just a the, ridiculous yeah, you, amount you
1: of, You ask to be in, you answer a couple of questions, and, and then i let you in. Uh, the <laughs> uh, And then you can also, uh, I haven't posted lately, but uh, I have a blog, which is letter R, John. My first name is given, name is Russell. It's says rjohnthebad.com. So yeah. uh, there's a couple of years of, of uh, screeds and... and things that i find myself repeating over and over again and i figure if i wrote it down i could just send somebody a link to the pod to the uh, to the blog
0: yep <laughs> all right man we'll uh we'll get some links in the show notes as well but john you take care keep uh keep doing what you're doing take care of yourself too okay that's your wife take care all right man take care